You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 21st of March 2019 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Juliet Foster and on today's show... This delay is a matter of great personal regret for me. And of this I am absolutely sure. You, the public, have had enough. As Theresa May asks the EU for more time to negotiate Brexit, 900,000 people crash a UK government petition website after signing a plea to revoke Article 50. As the death toll continues to rise from Mozambique's deadliest cyclone, we ask if the international media has underreported the tragedy. My guests, Mary Dzhevsky and Phil Clark, will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including what's in a name? Kazakhstan renames its capital in honour of the country's outgoing leader, who resigns after nearly 30 years in power. And small is beautiful for IKEA. Why the Swedish flat pack furniture giant is planning to open shops rather than traditional warehouses in Mexico. That's all to come here on Midori House with me, Juliet Foster. Welcome to Midori House. And my guests today are Mary Dzhevsky, a columnist for The Guardian and independent newspapers, and Phil Clark, who's a reader in comparative and international politics at SOAS, University of London. So welcome both of you to the programme. Now, there are just eight days to go until Brexit, if you're still counting. And the British Prime Minister, Theresa May, is in Brussels to ask for an extension to the March the 29th deadline that would give her more time to negotiate the UK's exit from the European Union. But it's not just the EU's patience and goodwill that's being tested in these troubled times. During a speech to the nation, Mrs May appeared to blame MPs for her failure to secure a Brexit deal. And to make matters worse, the government's own website was crashed by 900,000 people who signed a petition calling for Article 50, that's the mechanism that triggered the Brexit process, to be revoked. Now, I do have to give an update here because it seems that over a million people have now signed the petition because the, the, the actual website is, is up and running. But you do have to ask yourself, given where we are, Mary, is it really going to make that much difference apart from express the fact that people are still, or rather some people are still very angry? Well, it probably doesn't, it has to be said, because, you know, this is a gesture. Anybody can register their support for a petition online. It's a very easy thing to do. Um, maybe a slightly better test will be there's a big march planned in London on Saturday. Um, and if they get anything like approaching the turnout of the anti-Iraq war march, that will be a gigantic gauge of public opinion. Um, because as when the Iraq war march happened, and I happened to be in Paris then, the French commentators were saying, the Brits don't come out onto the streets that easily. So this really means something. Now... The question is whether that meaning something will actually translate into any political change of policy. And my feeling is that things have got so far that 
probably Theresa May is going to get some sort of deal and it will be cobbled together by the end of last week so that all this is really, um, it's agitation in the wings, but it probably won't change anything. So no changes there. Do you go along with that, Phil, or do you think that even at this last minute hour, if you do have a major turnout on the streets of London, that it might just persuade Theresa May that, look, I really can't discount the people who voted to remain in Europe. I think like Mary, I'm doubtful that even a massive turnout on Saturday is going to make much of a difference, if only because so much of what's happening with Brexit at the moment is about this infighting uh, between both the government and the opposition. Everything about Brexit at the moment seems to be determined by squabbling within the two major parties. And it actually has very little to do with what public opinion is um, Mm. on both sides. And that's certainly the perception in continental Europe as well, isn't it? That this this is really a stage for parties to fight amongst themselves rather than to deal with the bigger issues raised by this referendum. Indeed. And and both uh, Theresa May and Jeremy Corbyn, the opposition leader, haven't shown the necessary kind of leadership, which means finding a a positive way through this situation, uh, trying to unify different factions within their party, you know, coming up with a solution that the entire country can live with. And instead, both of them have been completely beholden uh, to particular factions uh, within their own parties. And the entire Brexit debate has been dominated by those dynamics. But Mary, has has there been any discernible shift in the public mood about Brexit? Are we seeing, for example, a tilt away from leavers to remainers, vice versa? Or is the actual division pretty much the same? Well, I think from the polls that I've seen, um, and I watch them pretty closely, um, there's maybe been a slight shift towards Remain. But the problem is, um, re- well, it's really twofold, that if, say, you were to rerun the referendum, then the margin even if it were a Remain victory, would possibly be no greater than the original margin, which means that you're in for a fight all over again. Mm. And the other thing is that even if the polls suggest that Remain is ahead, nonetheless, the strength of feeling among the Brexiteers, and you know, you can imagine the campaign pitches, you know, didn't you hear us the first time around? You know, that is an incredibly strong message. And it's I would judge that it's more likely that they would get more of their people out on the day than the Remain people, even though, you know, Remain tends to feel um, or look as though it feels as strongly as that. So, you know, that's one reason why I have, I have huge misgivings about the possibility of a second mm. vote. Because I guess that one of the, the arguments, Phil, that have been put forward about a second vote is that there were certain groups of people who were excluded for the first vote, and I'm talking specifically about the 17-year-olds and the 16-year-olds, they weren't able to vote at the time. But given where we are now in 2019, they would qualify to vote. So in theory, they could tip the balance. I I think that is one of the X factors in all of this, if we do end up going to a second referendum, is we do know that that demographic predominantly would vote Remain. And when we've seen this in all of the media reports over the last couple of years, that young people feel that they were sold out uh, through this referendum, that it was particularly an older generation with a certain nostalgia for a, a lost Britain that that voted for Brexit. Um, but I also, at the same time, very much share Mary's concerns about what would happen if we 
do go to a second referendum, I think it, it will be even more divisive than the first time around so because the, because but, of this sense of betrayal, this, but, this language of betrayal that the Brexit side would undoubtedly deploy. Right, but what on the other hand, if you theoretically, if you did have a second referendum, you included the 16-year-olds who weren't able to vote when the first referendum occurred, another group, British citizens living in Europe, who weren't allowed to vote. And let's say you had a victory for Remain, which was 60-40, 70-40. In other words, it's the degree of victory which seals this once and for all. Would that be yes. enough? I mean, I think there's two factors here. The first thing is that I think I would take a very, very dim view, and I very much doubt whether legislation would get through Parliament that altered the terms of the referendum. I think it would have to be run on the same terms as before. Now, at the same time, I have a huge problem with the terms of the referendum as they they were last time around, not really because of who they excluded, um, though I think that um, to an extent the youth vote um, does carry some of the blame because they didn't actually come out in the numbers mm. that they could and should have done. Um, and I think they could have swung it if, 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 if they turned out in sufficient numbers. Um, but the other problem is that unlike almost any country holding a referendum, our Europe referendum was uh, was carried out without a requirement for a minimum turnout, which would have been met, but also without the normal stipulation that either there should be a particular margin of victory or that you should have, say, a two-thirds majority. Um, and the idea that you can essentially change the whole future of the country, change the constitution of the country um, with a vote that was 48-52. I mean, that is really quite extraordinary. Right, but the moral of the story, I suppose, is that if you ever do want to have a referendum, be careful how you organise it and the reasons why you call <laughs> Absolutely. it. Absolutely. OK, let's move on now, because a week ago, the central coast of Mozambique was hit by one of Africa's deadliest cyclones. With winds of more than 106 miles per hour, Cyclone Adai has left a massive trail of destruction after moving inland across Zimbabwe and Malawi. Vital infrastructure has been destroyed, compounded by shortages of water, food and clean, well, clean water and food. So far, more than 300 people have been killed, although that figure could rise as aid workers struggle to find survivors trapped in the devastation. Mozambique's president, Felipe Nayusi, has described the cyclone as, quote, a disaster of great proportions, yet it appears that media coverage of the tragedy has been fairly slow. Phil, do you think that perhaps this cyclone was underreported? We're talking about it now, but wasn't the time to really draw public attention to what was happening at the beginning? Yes, in a word. I think the international coverage was very slow of Hurricane Idai, but after about a day or two, the international coverage really ramped up. And I went back and looked at it today in preparation for this segment. And, and in fact, it, it, in terms of reporting on African disasters over the last 10 years, it hasn't been too bad in terms of the, the volume of coverage. But there's one thing that's really striking looking at the international media, which is that there is no international media outlet that has a reporter on the ground in any of the three countries reporting on this. It's quite staggering, actually. So there's a huge volume of material mm -hmm. that, that's being reported, but none of it is from eyewitnesses. None of it is firsthand. It's an extremely distanced, uh, covered um, episode. And that, of course, affects the way that uh, international audiences engage with a story like this. There's a real lack, for example, of personal stories of people who may have survived the hurricane in, in the last week, which is the kind of thing that we had in spades uh, at, with the various hurricanes in Central and Latin America over the last um, 12 months. So the, the big impact of that, I think, is that it's very difficult to, to get people around the world to really care 
care about this because of the way that the story is being reported. Mm. But doesn't that really point to the economics of news gathering, Mary? I mean, look, we've both worked in newsrooms for, for a fair chunk of our careers, and the bottom line is that when editors make decisions, it's based on the budget that they're given. And I guess there's also the lazy man's option that why do we need to send crews out there when there are loads of stringers and loads of writers from Reuters and AP and various other news agencies? We just take the pictures, write the scripts and package it here in London. Yes, I mean, all that is true. Um, And it's particularly true over the last five, ten years or so that newsrooms have been cutting back and also um, that, you know, African countries, um, though, I mean, not exclusively African countries, but they are um, particularly difficult, I think, to report um, because transport links aren't wonderful and because they're actually quite expensive for foreigners to live in. You know, there are a lot of countries around the world which are actually quite cheap and pleasant for people to live in. Now, that doesn't apply to some of the African countries countries. So to be a stringer um, in one of those countries is much harder. It's also harder because, of course, the demand for news, except at a time like this, um, tends to be much less. So it's more difficult for people to make a living on it. Um, but I do, you know, I, I was, I, I've been actually quite surprised and shocked um, by the lack of reporting, especially at the beginning, but also the contrast between the lack of reporting at the beginning and now what you're getting is sort of, you know, people going up in helicopters and saying, we can see this mm. and so it's almost like an atonement for not moving quickly yes, enough. And, uh, and the trouble is that, uh, as Phil said, you know, it, th- th- there's been this time lag um, and somehow the urgency doesn't seem quite there. I think maybe also there, 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 there is this sense that because it's those, it, it, it's Africa, and again, this is very unfair to say so, but there is this sort of sense of hopelessness and mm. the idea that, well, you know, this is yet another sort of... And it's built um, into the fabric of their lives, yes, natural disasters. And therefore, you know, what can be done about it? Well, maybe not that much. Can I just turn things around a little bit, Phil? Because... Um, Do you feel that perhaps news outlets are more likely to respond to a disaster if it ticks certain boxes? Now, I want to go back to 2004 and the Boxing Day tsunami in Thailand. It happened during Christmas. Thailand, great tourist destination. Lots of foreigners went there because they want to get away from a horrible winter. And of course, something absolutely disastrous occurred. So if you take that as the measure, does it set the... The, 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 the timbre, if you like, about the kind of coverage you're likely to get, the, the, the sort of resources you're going to throw in. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the key factor there is being able to tell a story that this uh, disaster affects Westerners. You, you have to be able to show that in the British case, it's British citizens who are being affected. In the American case, that it's American citizens who are being affected. And, and that isn't really the picture in terms of Hurricane Ida. This is very much uh, a disaster uh, that is affecting the local population, especially in Mozambique, Malawi and, and Zimbabwe. And even there, what's interesting is that we have now started to see some pictures on our TV screens, a little bit more detail in the reporting, but it's with the one of those three countries that the Western media is is more favourable towards or knows more about, which is Zimbabwe. So what I've also been looking at in the last couple of days, especially on social media, is the real concern coming out of Malawi and Mozambique, that those two countries are basically being neglected. Now, one of the things that's important in the Mozambican case is that all of the flooding, the massive flooding that's taken place, especially in Zimbabwe in the last few days, because of gravity... Because 
because of the topography. All mm. of that water floods into <laughs> Mozambique. So it's been horrific in terms of what's happened in Zimbabwe, but it's going to hit Mozambique worse um, than, than, than all of those other uh, countries um, put together, which is why we've seen, for example, what's happened around the port city of Bera in the last mm, couple of days. It's very, staggering. Very it's badly a hit. population of about 600,000 people. Um, the entire city is inundated. It, it, it effectively no longer is a city. Um, tens of thousands of people potentially have been killed and the rest of the population has been displaced. So um, Mozambique is, is really the epicentre of all of this. Mm. I think there's an interesting angle too that um, another contrast with the tsunami was that very quickly um, the tsunami became not just the story of Westerners and tourists, it also became the story of an inadequate response, not by the disaster aid people, but by travel agents and especially foreign embassies, including especially the British, came under enormous criticism um, for not getting their nationals out or not rescuing their nationals or whatever. Um, and that became the sort of secondary story. And of course, that has immediate national interest. Mm. And I guess as well that when tragedies like Mozambique are underreported, it does have an impact on the amount of money that's given. And so far, the UK has given something like £12 million of aid. But then you could argue, well, hang on a minute, this is the fifth richest country in the world. So £12 million is not a sum to be proud of. Not really. (laughs) Not at all. And and you can see the desperation of humanitarian officials in the last few days having to use increasingly desperate rhetoric to try to get international attention. You know, saying things like this is the worst humanitarian disaster that the Southern Hemisphere has ever experienced. I mean, I'm not sure that's actually true, but you can see why. I think it was the head of the World Food Program who who made that uh, particular claim. The other thing that's going on in the background to all of this is, especially in the UK, but in parts of Europe and in the US, there is a real trend away from foreign aid at the moment. There there is a, a whole set of debates going on in these countries um, about aid being a problem, of it being a drain on domestic mm. resources. And so, you know, tragedies like this have the misfortune to take place at a time when there is increasing scepticism about whether aid is in fact necessary and, and whether it's a good thing. Yeah, and that's, that's a- partly because the, 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 there is a problem about the difference as it's seen between development aid and emergency aid, disaster relief. Um, and I sort of wish often um, when the criticisms are made that this distinction was also made along with it. Mm, but this, because but it again, seems that's to me that the reporting, though, exactly, isn't it? emergency disaster aid is absolutely, you know, this is an absolute prerequisite for everything else. I think you can argue about development aid, but emergency relief you know, there should be no question about mm. that. But, but as I, as I, I interrupted you briefly. I, I do apologise <laughs> for that because it, it does come back to this question of how something is reported because we are operating against a populist backdrop. And certainly in this country, we had the former Overseas Development Agency, Agency chief, Priti Patel, basically saying, look, there's too much money that's wasted. And again, you get examples of this and that, you know, she actually ran the office again. This is what I would plan to do. And that's rather worrying, does it actually feed through to that coverage as well in some way, shape or form when you're looking at a disaster? This idea that, you know, if you if you don't, if all, all this money which which you're cutting back on, it's not going there, that you, you, you dodge the responsibility question about how the money is going to be used, but you still want to be cautious. So you don't want to ramp things up too much. 
Indeed, and especially here in the UK, the right-wing press uh, ha- has an enormous influence over this. And in fact, uh, newspapers like uh, like the Sun, uh, the Daily Telegraph, and even the Times, to a certain extent, which likes to see itself as centre-right, have mounted a consistent campaign for years now against foreign aid, and have been coming in behind the likes of Priti Patel, arguing that in fact DFID, the Department for International Development, should be completely collapsed into the Foreign Office. The UK's aid program uh, should be shut down. Um, that undoubtedly affects the way that. Something like this hurricane is reported, mm. and so really, it's, it's, it can, can is it possible for for those involved in the news gathering operation? Can they actually be independent? of those forces because on the one hand you've got the populace saying look you know too much money's going out to these countries and okay what's happening is terribly tragic but on the other hand if they had good stable governments they could deal with it but then there is an obligation as a journalist and one could say as a humanitarian to stand away from that and say well hang on a minute this is what's happening and money is needed. Well, I think that all that is entirely true, but I think there's a slight other aspect there. I mean, I doubt slightly whether the reporters on the ground are going to be swayed by those particular arguments, at least mm. in their first response. But I'm talking more it's about the news the editors. Interest. Yeah. Um, but I do think there is that, that there is a slightly separate question about waste and all the rest of it, um, which is about the fact that sometimes with some disasters, so much aid arrives that the actual people on the, the infrastructure on the ground, either because of the disaster or because of the state of it generally, is not capable of coping with it Um, and so there's waste there and things aren't properly organised and that of course exposes the operations to the sort of criticisms that we've been talking about. Okay, you're listening there to Midori House with me Juliet Foster my guests Mary Dzhevsky and Phil Clark and coming up next, what is in a name? Kazakhstan renames its capital in honour of the country's outgoing leader who resigns after nearly 30 years in power. The rolling hills of Somerset might not be the most usual spot for a world-class art space, but it proved to be the perfect fit for Hauser & Wirth, an international art gallery with its heart in the countryside. Monocle Films reviews a weird and wonderful show that looks at our relationship with the land. We used to base our knowledge, our experience of the world, on the land, on nature, on the other beings that shared the world. Now we don't. So I'm trying to, in a way, re-establish a relationship to a form of knowledge that could be useful for us. Somerset's Strange Fruit, playing now in the film section at monocle.com. Still with me are my guests, Miri Dzhevsky and Phil Clark. Now, Kazakhstan has renamed its capital, Astana, to Nursultan in honour of the outgoing leader, Nursultan Nazarbayev, who unexpectedly resigned on Tuesday. Now, the change was announced as his successor, Kasim Jumar Tokayev, was sworn in as president after promising he would seek Mr Nazarbayev's opinions on key decisions. Well, Mr Nazarbayev, who's 78, is the only man to have led the oil-rich state since it emerged from the collapse of the Soviet Union in the early 1990s. Mary, forgive my cynicism, but I guess that this guy's been in power for 30 years, and if I'd taken over, I think I would say to him, we're going to rename the, the capital after you, 
you don't really want to get on his wrong side, do you? Even <laughs> even though he's actually retired. <laughs> well, there's two things that slightly surprised me about this because if you go to Astana, and I was there in November, um, there's actually quite a lot of things already that are named after Nazarbayev, um, but they're mostly named after him as Nazarbayev, which is obviously his his second name, including an absolutely gigantic state-of-the-art university, which occupies a huge amount of this brand new city. Um, so I'm slightly surprised that it's going to be renamed Nur Sultan, which is his first name, um, rather than Nazarbayev. But there's an interesting sideline also on the renaming of the city, because it wasn't originally Astana. It was originally something called Zelenograd, which was the, uh, a, a Russian name and means sort of to do with grain and, and, and was the, um, because it, came, it was in the middle of a very um, agricultural area. Um, and if you fly into Astana today, um, the airport code, you know, as, uh, as you have LHR for London Heathrow, um, the airport code for Astana is actually the one that it inherited from Zelenograd. So it's ZLE. Um, and so now they've got the possibility. I asked, why didn't you change it? Um, and nobody had an answer. Well, now they can change it to whatever, you know, whatever the code for Nur Sultan will be. <laughs> Let, let's not even go there. But Phil, you, you do have to ask yourself whether changing the name of this capital is going to make that much difference in terms of raising Kazakhstan's profile beyond its immediate geography. I mean, OK, to hacks like us, it, it maybe it does, but to, to Fred and Doris Bonkers on the streets outside this studio... What? <laughs> <laughs> so either most people won't notice it, um, or if they do, it will probably confirm, you know, the everyday person's perceptions of Kazakhstan, which is that it is this, uh, you know, highly authoritarian state uh, that is synonymous with this one leader who's been in power is that for like thirty years. They try years to personalize it. By <laughs> indeed, uh, if, I mean, if anything, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, the little I know about Kazakhstan was that it was doing its utmost to try to throw off this kind of image, and it was trying to portray itself as more modern. And, you know, that stuff is in the past and we're moving into the future. And, you know, we're a kind of a European uh, state that also has these productive links with uh, with Russia. And yeah, so this naming seems to uh, throw itself back into the way that people perceive this state beforehand. Mm, but I, I guess it does beg the question, though, why is it that long serving leaders, dictators, most loved, call them what you will? Why is it, why is it they try to pay tribute to themselves by having a city named after them? Why not just settle for having an amazing portrait painted that it turns up in all the embassies. I mean, Enver Hodger used to do that when he led Albania. <laughs> if you were really cynical, you could say, well, there wasn't actually that much left um, to name after Nazarbayev, so you could start with the capital. Perish the thought. <laughs> um, but, um, but it is true that, you know, you, you said, you know, he's be, he, 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 he was in power from 1989, um, when he was head of the Communist Party. And he has steered Kazakhstan through all the changes and the ructions and everything from then till now and has survived. Um, and there are obviously all sorts of problems, including human rights problems in Kazakhstan. But in terms of his image among the sort of grassroots in Kazakhstan, he does have this 
heir of father of the nation, the new post-Soviet nation. So it's not entirely um, out of kilter, but you would rather have hoped that they might have waited a little. <laughs> you mean till, till he passed away, slipped his mortal coil or something? <laughs> anyway, let's move on now to our final, final issue. IKEA, the multi-billion dollar Swedish company famous for its flat pack furniture, is to break with tradition when it opens its first stores in Mexico. Now, traditionally, IKEA sells its products from giant warehouses located on the outskirts of cities. However, because Mexico is strapped for space, the company will instead sell its furniture from shops on the high streets of Mexico City, Guadalajara and Monterrey. But the question is, guys, will they be selling this stuff assembled or in the flat packs? (laughs) I, I, I was hoping this story was going to tell us that IKEA would be building flat pack buildings, that, uh, <laughs> that these entire sort of warehouses would be de- sort of built in exactly the same fashion, come in on the back of trucks. Uh, everyday citizens, completely baffled by a set of instructions, would have to spend weeks of torment trying to build this warehouse in the middle of uh, large scale metropolises like Mexico City and, and London. It would appear perhaps that's not the case. I mean, the, the thing which. Um I guess stands out with this story, Mary, is that it's not a bad thing if IKEA does break away from its business model because there is so much retail generally is having a really hard time. You've got all these empty shop units, so having a brand like IKEA taking <laughs> taking up well, these spaces is not I, a bad I was thing. Slightly, slightly surprised actually when you sort of introduced the distinction as being between um, ready assembled and <laughs> flat pack, because it seemed to me that there is a third dimension, um, which is the sort of virtual showroom, um, where you just go in and you sort of order it from the, from, from the visuals that they've got around you. And the reason I say this is because I got very excited um, about a year ago when IKEA announced that it was going to change its strategy and in some major cities, including London, it was going to have sort of city centre stores, small stores. And I thought that's fantastic. It means I don't have to go round the whole maze of all these cons- mm. room constructions to find, say, a corkscrew or a chopping board or whatever. Yeah. Um, so I found their first city store in London. And I walked into it and I was, I, I was sort of looking around pathetically for um, kitchen implements. And it's an entirely virtual store. What they've Did you put find in that this disorienting? Store, what, what they've put in this store is the opposite of what I expected them to put in a city centre store. <laughs> because basically it's mock-ups of all the things that you could sort of buy from the catalogue as rooms. And ah. all this sort of, you know, small scale stuff, which is what I expected to be there and actually hoped was going to be there. They said, oh, no, you know, that's not the concept, they said. <laughs> that, that sounds like a disappointing customer to me, Phil. <laughs> that, I mean, I've never set foot in an Ikea and I'm well, hoping to get to s- the end of my life well, by never say, having you, done so. Have you so ever that had that, an Ikea experience? No, I haven't. And I, I'm terrible with assembling anything. So, you know, my mind absolutely boggles at the possibility of this, but also just the, uh, the whole sort of description of the shopping experience in these warehouses just sort of gives me hives. So yeah, I must say, I, I, I read this story with sort of an increasing sense of horror that actually I, it had always given me some comfort that these warehouses were far flung on the fringes of cities. If you didn't want to engage with it, you didn't have to. It was kind of out of sight, out of mind. And now it's sort of infiltrating into the, the centre of our very being. It gives oh me great dear. concern. Julia. Well, I did have one very negative experience in a branch of IKEA in London. I was there with some friends of mine and we tried to get some furniture and we actually ended up breaking up a fight between two women over some flat pack furniture 
They even assaulted a security guard who tried to break them up, but we succeeded where he failed. <laughs> Which brings us to the end of today's show. Mary Dzeszewski and Phil Clark, thank you both for joining us here at Midori House. And today's show was produced by Daniel Bach. It was researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Teresa Malvuli. Our studio manager was David Stevens. More music next than at 1900. It is The Urbanist, presented by Carlotto Rebello. And then we'll have more on the day's main stories on the Monocle Daily at 2200. Midori House is back at the same time tomorrow. That is 1800 London time. I'm Juliet Foster. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>